If you are in a role right now that you do not feel is going to take you to the next level in your career, get out. Find one that's going to help project you to that next role because you don't want to just be in a role just because, and I don't even care, it could be paying you half a million dollars. It might be a role, but it might be a role that you could take that'll make you make more than half a million dollars. But now that you're stuck at half a million, you maybe never eclipse that because you don't have the skills that you need to make more. And that's what people don't look into. They just look into the now. All right, man. So what do you think about showing your profile picture on LinkedIn? There are mixed reviews with it. I have never been a person who hasn't had a picture on there. So I have never did A-B testing with it. I know a lot of people, you know, and we'll go ahead and say black people do the A-B test based on seeing if they'll get responded to quicker from recruiters versus having their picture on there and maybe getting missed over. So the floor is yours as a person who is a default profile picture on LinkedIn. Yeah, there's a, there's a long story behind that, man. And I'm going to be totally honest with you. So it was a, there was a time where I did actually have a profile picture up on LinkedIn. Um, and, and I I love how you, you called it out the AB testing piece, man. So, I, that's really what I was doing, right? I was doing some testing. And uh, what I noticed is as soon as I took my profile picture down, I was getting a lot more hit. And to be honest with you, it's something that I've considered more recently of even going back and putting one up because for the time being, it served its purpose, right? The purpose was for me to try and gather information, gather some intel, and really overcome some of those natural biases conscious and unconscious that people have when it comes to interacting with people on LinkedIn. I mean, if I'm being real honest, yo, I'm not, I'm not in the media, right? I'm not, I'm not in, uh, you know, I'm not an actor. I'm not a movie star. You know what I'm saying? I'm not, I'm not going for auditions. Like you don't need to see what I look like. The only thing you need to know is I can do the job, right? Whatever you need to get done, I can do it. And if if that's the case, if I'm coming in to solve a problem for you, then it doesn't matter what I look like. Yeah, I like it. I tell people it's a little bit different for me since I've been branding myself. So it's not one of those rules don't apply to me type of things. It's just a little bit different for me because you could type my name in and probably see me on LinkedIn Learning or on YouTube or or somewhere else. So that's why I tend to just have a picture on there. I tend to tell people have a decent one. If we were going to go into the psychology of things, I learned this in the business class, my first business class in undergrad, where our professor was like, we potentially want to hire attractive people. So a theory of mine is if you are an attractive person, handsome per- a handsome person or a handsome woman, I'm, <laughs> I'm a big I mean, I mean, women can be handsome too, right? I mean, hey, let's, let's get it, right? I mean, <laughs> if, you're a handsome, if you're a handsome man or a beautiful woman, or a beautiful person, then I believe it wouldn't matter if your picture is you know, not up there. Because I know one of the things that I teach my clients is when I show you how to look up recruiters or reach out to, I say, hey, find somebody with a decent picture that's smiling, that's nice. If you can, find somebody that kind of look like you, they might be more inclined to reach out. But if not, find somebody that's smiling that looks like they're nice and see and test your look. Right. Right, and I, right. most of the time you may uh, may or may not be successful, but if you are successful with that, it's perfect. 
I, and I, I totally agree with you, man, on, on so many of those points you're making, because as a person myself who's really trying to, to come out from the shadows, if you will, right, and, uh, and and get like you and some of the other people I see out here who's really doing a thing in terms of, like, you know, the, the, the social media presence and really, like, building a brand and a platform, I found that it, there is a specific need to come out and really be present you know, really be visible from that perspective. So I, I totally agree with you there. The only thing I'll say is like this, man. You know, aesthetically challenged people need jobs too. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> this guy's wild and this is a late night stream. Let me go ahead and introduce uh, everybody real quick. But welcome back to the Textual Talk Podcast. It's episode 80. Well, I'm your host, HD. If you're not familiar with the podcast, I'm a cybersecurity professional, content creator, LinkedIn learning instructor, and I'm a cybersecurity career coach. And today we have a special guest, special co-host with us, Mr. Marcus Wells. He is known as what I would call a hellraiser on LinkedIn. So what we're going to do is go ahead and let you briefly introduce yourself to the audience. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So I am a cybersecurity professional. I've been working in IT and cybersecurity for 20 plus years now. Um, you know, I started at my, my own company really when I was still in high school. Uh, and, and even back then, you know, we, we were just building laptops and, and really, really building desktops for people and uh, fixing laptops, what I really should say at the time. But we were, we were coming to the market with custom solutions and we were doing it for like smaller businesses, uh, entrepreneurs, you know, it really started off just kind of providing those neighborhood services. And over time, it, it uh, naturally evolved into something much bigger. So with that being said, you know, I, I have a lot of experience in um, just that IT support side, kind of got to, to see a lot of things within the space. But, you know, more specifically now, I'm focusing on identity security. And I've been doing that for probably the last 15 or so years. Uh, being in that uh, in a security space and uh, providing solutions for the clients that I work with. Dope, man. Dope. Guys, we got some great topics to get into uh, with you guys today. Uh, I cannot wait. When I call Marcus a hellraiser on LinkedIn, that's literally what he is. I Now that I know him, I can read his tone and all of his, his posts. And I know they ruffle a lot of feathers. And I'm surprised they don't go viral. Like, I've recently went viral. Jermaine goes viral all the time on, on LinkedIn. And I'm surprised Marcus has not gone viral yet with his takes because let's just face it, they are the honest to God truth. So I actually want to ask you this. This was not on the topic list, but I want to ask you this real quick. Yeah. Have you ever gotten any, not serious blowback, but what was your most controversial LinkedIn take? And what, uh, how did you navigate that when it came to like, I guess, either blowback or a lot of unnecessary comments or or whatever? How did you how did you do that? That's a really, really good question. And I'm going to I'm going to give you such a straight, honest answer. Um, you know, I'm the kind of person where, like, like you said, I, I'm a bit of a hell raiser, but I'm not I'm not doing it for the purposes of explicitly raising hell. I'm just I'm just saying what we all thinking. And, and I'm, I, you know, I felt like I'm using my platform to be able to, to speak up for a lot of people who are experiencing the same thing. So with that being said, I haven't really paid too much close attention to um, a lot of the blowback. You know, I've had many people come to me and, and if, if I'm really thinking about it, honestly, I think the biggest 
you know, most controversial statement I've ever made that's received like the most amount of engagement is a couple of years back when I was calling out, uh, you know, uh, application tracking software uh, explicitly, you know, talking about things like systems like Workday, systems like, uh, you know, ADP, systems like Bullhorn, right? Um, kind of in that vein and letting people know that these are static based systems that are reading your resume before a human person ever does. And I had a couple, you know, like LinkedIn influencer types who were in HR and recruiting try to come at me in the comments. And, you know, my, my principle is like this, man. I'm not here to fight with you. I'm not here to argue with you. I'm here to spit straight facts. If you don't like what I have to say, cool, you keep moving. But if you're going to try to get spicy in the comments, I'm going to block you and I'm going to keep it moving. That's it. <laughs> he said, I'm going to block you and keep it moving. Man. <laughs> I would say the the biggest one I've had to date is the fact when I said four days in office is not remote. No, no, I said it's not hybrid. It's full time or something like that. And oh my gosh, like you saw it for yourself. Like LinkedIn just started tripping and all type of crazy stuff. I had to block one dude because I like he was so passive aggressive with me, bro. It was just like I don't like people like that. I really yeah. don't. <laughs> Yeah, I agree with you. I, I'm totally with you on that. And I, I mean, I also agree with your, your your sentiment in that post as well. You know, like it's kind of like people say like, oh, you know, <laughs> hey, we got we got remote work, but we still want you to come in two, two days a week or one day a week. Right. That's not remote. If I have to leave my house, if I have to get out of my PJs, if I got to put real clothes on, get in the car or get in the bus or whatever, however you choose to communicate. To go to a physical location that is not already part of my home dwelling, right? That is a mandatory factor of how I engage with work. That's not remote. You can call it whatever you want, but don't call it remote. That's facts. <laughs> yeah, I might you know what. That's a good title for this this episode. You can call it whatever you want, but don't call it remote. <laughs> <laughs> and, and speaking of that, that actually should segue us into the first topic about bosses who are forcing employees to return to office. This has become a hot topic on LinkedIn. I also have some controversial takes about this for people who are early in their career. So you definitely don't want to miss that. But let's talk about it real quick. Let's do it. So I came across this article on CNBC and I thought about it. It'd be pretty cool to read this to see what everyone else feels about Remote work, return to the office, how do they feel about it? Is there a certain age of people who like going to the office? And isn't it? So let's see. Bosses think in-office work three times a week is the magical number. It's not. Corporate bosses are getting return to office requirements all wrong. Global work experts and remote leaders said during a panel conversation at the South by Southwest Conference in Austin, Texas. A three days a week requirement has become the norm at many companies, but it's far from a best practice or grounded in good data, said Michael Bush, CEO of Great Place to Work, the global research and analytics firm that evaluates corporate culture. Why three days a week? Why not four? Why not two? He says many bosses land on three days a week as if it's the magical number. It's not. You should have a reason why three matters. You know what? That's actually a good question. If you just ask somebody why three days, they would not be able to tell you. That's fact. Every leader should listen better. Bush says many leaders mistakenly assume that being together in person 
automatically leads to better collaboration. There's no, there's no data to support it because there was a lot of innovation with people not being together over the last three years. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm gonna jump in real quick. Go ahead. Go ahead. It. So, so here's the thing, man. I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna just drop this real quick, man. I think you and I are pro- probably part of the same generation. We, we grew up playing video games. We grew up playing video games online, specifically. We grew up, you know, being part of guilds and being part of uh, communities in, in a, a explicitly digital space. You got people who have literally been playing video games with each other for years, right? Competitively, uh, casually, whatever, right? They have some uh, amazing communication. They have some amazing collaboration, and they're fully remote, right? Never met in person before in their life. So make it make sense. That's all I'm going to say about that. Make it make sense. <laughs> they can't make it make sense. They can't. Then there are leaders with control issues. Bush says, the one thing you don't do is say, I want everybody back because it makes me feel better. This is the big risk for hiring and retention, he adds. People who work for these types of leaders are updating their profiles on LinkedIn. Yes, they are. As far as best practices go, Bush says every leader should listen better and understand how teams work. Best based on one-on-one conversations, surveys, focus groups, or 90-day trial months. Sarah Fern, Chief People Officer at Velocity Global, says listening is the biggest challenge for remote leaders and most importantly, understanding what you're not hearing. All right, let's check this one out. Let's see if this is going to be fluff or real. There are not good remote work policies in place. The haphazard state of today's flexible work environment is far from what the future of remote and hybrid work will look like, says Jessica Reeder, Director of Remote Organizational Effectiveness at Upwork. There are not good remote work there are not good remote work policies in place. We're learning. This is something that's very new to most companies. She says working during the pandemic wasn't working remotely as much as it was working through a crisis in a remote setting. This is making it work because you have to, she explains, but the real long-term work of building out policies and practices that can actually keep people happy, keep them working at your company and not looking for another job and keep them productive is a long process. I got the answer to that. I got the answer to the last part. <laughs> what your answer is, man? What you got? What uh, you it's got a little that? bit of remote work, but if you want people to remain happy and stay, pay them accordingly every year. Inflation no. come, whatever whatever stuff inflated by, raise their raises to that. At least they're not the deficit where they're going to go somewhere else just because they are making less money based on they have don't have as much purchasing power anymore. That's a simple. That's one easy simple fix. To be honest, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. One basic fix that companies still miss, reader says, is setting up meetings with a remote first approach, where everyone dials into the same video conference line, including people who are in the office. A bigger challenge for CEOs and companies, reader says, is listening and observing and understanding and being conscious of what's not working. That's the difficult part that many companies are in right now. So, so Henri, I want to, I want to, I want to step in and say something here. I'm going to say something. Say something to the audience, man. Gonna, let's take, let, let's have, a, let's have a moment. Audience, come to my office, okay? This article, hey, listen, makes some really good points, right? The problem is, I understand what they're trying to communicate, but they're missing the mark on one very important piece. They keep referring to these people as leaders. You know what a leader is? A leader is somebody who steps out in front, right? They chart the course. 
They're going ahead of everybody else. They're removing roadblocks. They're understanding what it takes to do whatever the activity is. And then they're helping guide the people who are coming in after them to be successful. That's what a leader is, right? These people that we're talking about in this article, the ones that are trying to force people back into work, the ones who don't understand and can't harness the, the benefits of remote work, the ones who can't seem to manage in a remote capacity, right? They're not leaders. They are managers. There's a difference, right? We got to start understanding that we have to start using our language more effectively. That's what I'm going to say about that. I would agree to that. I would also believe that some managers want to be the leaders that kind of usher in, I said usher, <laughs> usher in the new change in the company. But company politics plays a big part in that. But yeah. I believe as a manager, you have some type of power to fight that. Like, let me go solo real quick. Let's see. For example, in my last role, they went from coming into office two days a week to in this year, early this year, they were trying to say, okay, now you got to come in three days. But there was no added benefit for you being there. There's no, they're not saying, oh, productivity is slipping. This is happening. No, it's simply because they wanted you to come in office. They feel like they spent all this money on this nice campus. They want you to come there. And I was like, no, I'm not. Because for one, when I come to the office, I don't really like it because everybody there is having meetings most of the day. So mm. it's already loud and irritable. And my team is in another state. So it's just me. So what added benefit do I have if I want to learn something from a team member where I have to Skype them instead of like if they were actually there? Maybe I could see the benefit. But no, that's number two. Three, it was gas coming from a different area, driving in just to go and then leaving at a certain time so I won't be stuck in traffic the whole day. Just, to, just That's the thing, too, the inconvenience of, you know, having us sometimes if you got kids or you don't, but then you have to be stuck in this traffic trying to get home and getting less time to be with the kids. You're already probably angry that you've been in traffic for about an hour, hour and a half just to get home. Yeah. That's, not to mention what you have to do when it comes to going to work. So for me, time that they, time that they did that, man, I did this. Okay. All right. I did that, man. <laughs> and I resigned that night. I resigned that night and, and put my four weeks in because I was like, no, I, I'm not really with this no more. I didn't learn anything. This role. And for the people that's listening if you are in a role right now that you do not feel is going to take you to the next level in your career, get out. Find one that's going to help project you to that next role because you don't want to just be in a role just because, and I don't even care, it could be paying you a half a million dollars. It might be a role, but it might be a role that you could take that'll make you make more than half a million dollars. But now that you're stuck at half a million, you maybe never eclipse that because you don't have the skills that you need to make more. And that's what people don't look into. They just look into the now. Because I had a conversation with a friend. He saw my uh, latest I Quit video. And he was talking about for the salary that I was getting paid on that video. He was saying, oh, I would have did whatever they wanted me to do. I said, <laughs> you probably, I said, you probably would for a little while until you realize you are miserable. 
so that's the thing. Like the money, it's everyone on the bottom part is looking like, yeah, I would have stayed there and took that money. Yeah, but eventually you would have snapped. That's the reason why we see things that happen in people's personal lives. Not happy. Choose your happiness. We can't get everything, but at least you can pick where you want to work at. It's not yeah. like the NFL. They don't own you. Now, if you get a sign-on or something like that, you better negotiate with a new company to hey pay that money to them or whatever. If not, you're going to have to pay it back. But, Marcus, speaking of that, I wanted you actually to – I've had a couple of people on here that are in identity access management. I wanted you to talk about identity access management from your perspective because I think you give a unique take on it. I always tell people I don't believe identity access management is respected enough, but at the end of the day, it's at the core of everything is so critical. Yeah. So, because most of the time when there is a breach or something happens, nine times out of 10, they got a hold of an account that didn't have the proper protections on it, had too much power, was never audited. You already know. I mean, you talk about this all the time. So I'm going to go ahead and let you, you know, you know, go ahead and, and, and do your thing. Let, let's get it, man. Let's get it. I appreciate you queuing me up like that as well, man. So let's 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 really look at it for a second, right? So, you know, you got so many different disciplines in cybersecurity, and I love every last single one of them. I'm not an expert in everything. I know a little bit about a little bit, but I know a hell of a lot about identity security, right? So I'll tell you like this, man. There might be ten thousand ways for an attacker to be able to breach either a piece of enterprise equipment, resource, data, intercept, whatever, right? But at the end of the day, no matter how they actually got over your moat, your defensive, they got over the castle walls, however they did that, right? Cool. But as soon as they get in, they have to assume the identity of somebody who's already in the organization, period. Like. There may be there may be multiple different ways for them to get in, but once they're in, they gotta assume an identity. They can't just walk in as themselves. That does that's that's not that's not gonna work. That's not how it works, right? So there's a there's a couple different things that people kind of you know uh, think about when they think of identity security. When I say when people, I'm I'm specifically talking about a, a, a typical type of person. That person is typically like the leadership of these organizations. Um, you know, management, whatever, however you want to call it, right? Uh, when they're thinking about identity security, they're thinking about, you know, the identity life cycle, right? And typically you might hear them say like, oh, it's the JML process, right? With refers to like the joiner, mover, lever process. And there's a lot more to this. Thing. Hold on, hold on. The what process? Uh, the JML process, right? It's the joiner, mover, lever process. You may hear that coming up in, okay. in some of these conversations with folks, right? So the problem is, that is a gross misrepresentation of the identity and access management lifecycle, right? So the identity and access management lifecycle is actually comprised of eight separate and equal parts. Number one, asset management, specifically IT asset management. Okay. And I'm gonna just I'm gonna just I'm gonna just say this because it's a bit of a hot take, but when it comes to actually managing identities, you have to also manage what those identities have the ability to leverage into. So if you don't have an understanding of what assets you have that require logins and understand where those devices are, how they're being used, when they were last logged in, and have some way of being able to put an accurate, you know, physical or digital hands on them, 
then you're already failing. You're already failing, right? That's step one. Of course, step two is going to be provisioning. You have authentication. You have authorization. You have self-services. You've got password management. You have governance. And you have deprovisioning. So I'm going I'm to break something down real quick. When people talking about the JML process, that joiner mover lever process, they're really talking about a small portion of those eight steps. They're only talking about provisioning. That's the joiner, right? Uh, they're talking about deprovisioning. That's the lever, right? And then the mover process is actually kind of in between the two because in many cases, the mover process can be comprised of, hey, somebody got a promotion, so they need more access. Somebody got a demotion, so they need less access, or maybe they made a lateral move, right? But it's still it's still only covering those two essential pieces of the overall identity life cycle. And in ignoring everything else, you're leaving huge gaps in your processes and in your in your security strategies. Nice man, nice. It's crazy that one of the first things you talked about is IT asset management because in consultations, I tell people a lot of times that asset management is low-key, slipped on, and needed everywhere. You'd be surprised what companies do not know what's on their network. You're looking through logs, and you don't even know who's the owner of this. Like the last company, I was doing a lot more GRC-focused type of work working with data analytics and firewall rule violations. So if someone had a violation, most of the time you're going to reach out to the owner and they need to fix it and do whatever they need to do. But we had a lot of them that didn't have owners. Mm -hmm. And you didn't know where to find it. So I remember I was given a project on like, hey, how do we assess risk on this? What do we do? I scrapped everything. I went back to ground one. I said, hey, why are we doing this job? And where's the asset management team? This is what they supposed to do. We supposed to give them these lists of assets we don't know what they belong to, and they go find who these things belong to. It's not our job to go find these owners. Right. Our job is just to assess the risk. But that's a but that's the thing. If you don't even know, like if you don't know who does that, that's huge. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's and it's funny you should you should mention that too because what you're talking about is what I would call in the industry scope creep, right? Mm-hmm. You you you're hired to do a specific job. And now you got somebody who's identified a risk or a problem within how activities are functioning in an organization. And instead of actually going back and saying, hmm, do we have somebody aligned to these responsibilities in the org that should be taking up this level of effort, this activity, right? They're going to just throw it on you because, you know, you're the person that's, that's, that's staying the closest, right? So a lot of times when you when you see these job descriptions, for example, as a prime example, you know, I told people this all the time, like, listen, you have to you have to look at these job descriptions with an eye of criticality, right? You have to really be looking at the stuff very carefully because there are going to be issues with how they're describing a role. Does the role title match the responsibilities? That's the first question I'm always asking. And many times people don't realize this, but they can ask questions during interviews as well. You could say, hey, look, when was the last time somebody did a racing matrix for this role, right? You're talking about role-based access. That's one of the key factors within identity security, right? You, mm-hmm. You're literally mapping out, this is the role in the organization. The, the role we're going to talk about right now is, I don't know, let's just say accountant, right? And as an accountant, we have, we have three people on that team. 
or three different types of uh, positions on that team, right? There should be a build, there should be a plan, and there should be a run person on every single team, every part of your organization, right? I don't care how you have it situated, there should always be those designated type of roles. Mm-hmm. And that racing matrix is going to really what's going to uh, be what's that that's going to be that guideline to say, okay, this is the run person. This is the, the title of that role. This is their responsibilities. This is the build person. This is the title of that role. This is their responsibilities. This is the plan person. This is the title of that role. This is their responsibilities. And if you go into an interview and the hiring manager can't give you basic operational information about, hey, when was the last time somebody did a racing matrix? When was the last time somebody did capacity planning for the team? You know, what's the cost of, of uh, operations for your team? If someone, you know, got sick tomorrow, if somebody got hit by a bus in the next five minutes off your team, how how is that going to impact the bottom line of your organization? If they can't give you that information, man, stop playing. Listen, hey, you, you just said a mouthful, man. And when you were talking, I just thought about asking questions, interview, pre-interview. Like he said, it's okay to ask questions in an interview. When recruiters reach out to me with a long job description and I'm, I'm looking at the title and I'm looking at everything it says it wants. And cause the thing with entry level people and some mid-level people, you don't know what you don't know. So you don't know that all this stuff might be three or four jobs combined in one. So I look at all this stuff and I ask them these simple words. Hey, what is the hiring manager? What are they actually looking for? Because what we know is a lot of these things are made by HR. They're just scrubbing stuff and slapping it on there. And the whole, there's memes going on the same like the job description shows, like you need to know like JavaScript, Python, all these different things. And then it says the job, Excel. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Like these are the things that, that people go through is like, and that's the sucky part when it comes to people trying to break in. They see all these different job descriptions and they're trying to go learn all these things. When I'm like, no, a uh, prime example, I have a client right now and uh, I hope this actually works out for him. So hopefully on the next couple of podcasts, maybe I can have some good news. He has, and I actually can, let me see. I should be able to pull this thing up. Pretty much has a background uh, from what's like construction or something like that. And he is uh, trying to pivot and get a cloud role. Mm. And he's been really putting the work in. Uh, this is going to be a good segue. I like when I can talk about stuff like this. Uh, I wish I could actually play his. Um, there we go. Let's share this thing that he is uh, interviewing for. Well, he's already interviewed. He said he did pretty good, pretty well. Okay. And um, like I said, he didn't have a background on this stuff. He just worked really hard and, and been pro- uh, doing projects. And like I tell my clients, hey, get active on LinkedIn. And he said, in the voicemail, he said, yo, you was right about being active on LinkedIn. He said, during the interview, I was trying to share my screen and stuff like that. And the guy, he said, the guy said, oh, don't worry about it. I've already seen that you've been doing a lot of projects and stuff on your LinkedIn. Wow. So that's why I tell people that. I was like, when you are coming in and your background is not in this, you have to do stuff to stand out. You got to market yourself. You know, yeah. if I'm trying to go make the varsity basketball team, I'm going to probably try to do something to where, hmm, hey, dad, drop me off at the school early or come get me late. So the coach see me shooting, you know, 300 threes after everybody gone mm. when he, before he finally lock up the gym. Now, I might not be the best player, but I've did something to stand out from the rest of the guys who are trying to make the team. Right. 
so that's a good analogy I can use for you there. But reason why I told him not to be worried, right? Because this is when you know if this is a look entry level position, right? And words matter, like we were talking about. And let me uh, do this some more, maybe so you can see it a little better. And, and I, honestly, I'm gonna say this right quick before you even get it, jump into this. I'm gonna tell you why I know this is a good job description. I'm gonna tell you why I know. Because even though I can't see it super clear, it's kind of still a little, little, little tiny. Is I don't it? see. I don't see a whole lot of bullet points. Yeah, and I can. I can off like off the rip. If I don't, if I see just like a a, a, a small handful of bullet points, I know we're on the right track. I don't even gotta read it. I just know we're on the right track. There you go. Can you see it now? Yeah, yeah, I can see that real clear now. Okay, perfect. So this is a cloud engineer one role. It's an entry level position that will work at a federal cu cloud customer's infrastructure. The candidate should have a solid understanding of cloud computing concepts and experience with at least one cloud platform, and which is why I tell people to pick one and just learn it. Mm -hmm. Nobody expects you to know all three in the beginning. Now, here the job responsibilities, which definitely seems entry level. Work with the team to design, deploy, and maintain cloud infrastructure, assist in developing and implementing cloud solutions using industry best practices. Work with security team. Work with security teams to ensure cloud infrastructure is secure and compliant with federal regulations and standards. Provide tech support, troubleshooting for cloud-based applications and services, and develop and maintain documentation for cloud infrastructure and procedures. Very straight to the point, and I can tell that's entry level. Yeah. Now, when I got to the education part, I said, "Hey, don't worry about some of this stuff because an entry level person isn't supposed to know so many things." So. This really doesn't matter because they're not even really, really caring too much about that. Um, this is regular. Okay. Basic understanding of this. Mm -hmm. This is easy because you need to do it for the job. Right. This right here is hit or miss. If you know Python, Bash, or PowerShell, you can learn that on the job or on your own. Oh, no, no. This education was fine. My fault. Preferred qualifications where I told him, hey, it's all right because no entry level person is going to know these things. Right. There's no way possible they're going to have uh, access to Fed Ramp or FISMA. Uh, they may have heard of Terraform and Ansible, but they aren't going to just be highly skilled at it. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Docker and Kubernetes, which Kubernetes just became very popular the last couple of years. And these things, this is an entry level person. There's no way possible <laughs> they want to know all this stuff. So he told me it went well, and it was like, you know, it wasn't anything major. So that, I say that to say this. It's like real entry-level roles are most of the time going to have short job responsibilities and decent education. Preferred qualifications is just some BS crap. Sometimes I look at them and saying, hey, I'm, I'm trying to find the most qualified person for cheap. Because right. these, these preferred qualifications is, is senior level. It's not entry. <laughs> so um, just look at that sometimes pay attention to the preferred qualifications and what the job is actually I've seen them when they have uh, like bullets down to here and I'm like come on fam right. I'm, not gonna, I'm not even going to entertain this I'm like I'm not I don't want to look at that and that is one of the issues is why like they just need people to help them go through the job description sometimes and when I also help clients when they're trying to search for jobs and, and they're like oh I'm not getting hits and then I'm looking at what's on the job I was like oh well your skill set doesn't kind of fit this, what it's asking you. Mm -hmm. I know you might think it is, but I'm telling you, that's why nobody's calling you back. And then they say, okay. And then we find something to do and I send them to them. So that's just what I'm doing and kind of helping people. Hey, just, just do it the normal 
way. Like, I promise <laughs> you. And um, also, what's funny is reason another reason why we go so hard on certifications, because I got a call from a friend earlier, and it was telling me how somebody, his friend, one of his friends got a certification from whoever who pretty much took it for him by like remoting into their computer and taking the form online. And they overpaid for the certification. Wow. They're trying to, they are charge. I forgot what he said. I think he said they would charge 10 to 8K to take the CISSP for somebody else. Like, <laughs> right. what? I, yeah, it's not that serious, man. I was telling him, I said, I was telling him, I was like, bro, you already got like eight, seven, eight years of experience. He was like, man, you're right. I'm just so busy. I ain't got time to study. I said, oh, well, that's a waste of money. Listen, listen, I, and I, I absolutely agree with you. I know, you, you know, one of, the, one of the things we want to kind of get into here was uh, the comp tier search as well. So I think. Yeah, we can roll it. Look, go ahead. That's, that's, a, that's a great show. You know, so I, I, I'll put it to you like this, man. You know, when I started, when I started learning about computers and IT and stuff like that, like, and not to, not to age myself here, not to carbon date myself here, but, uh, you know, CompTIA didn't even offer the A-plus certification when I was first hitting the market. Like, that stuff was, like, brand spanking new. You feel me? And it's like... I've been doing it for a long time! <laughs> like, like, these companies act like, yo, that's the golden standard. Like, that's that's just... It's an easy button for HR, though. That's really what it is. It's an easy button for HR. That's first and foremost, right? And uh, I'm going to just be real honest with you. Like, I, I started kind of taking this full circle here, I started doing like these hot takes on LinkedIn like a couple years back. And it real, like on some real, like it started with me criticizing CompTIA, right? And how I thought it was a trash organization. And I stand by that to this day, okay? I only have had more evidence to, to really support how I feel about it. And I, I'll tell you the, the most recent thing that I've seen in this space. I mean, aside from the certifications, not really keeping up with industry knowledge. I mean, like straight up factually inaccurate information on an A-plus certification practice exam from CompTIA, right? We're not even going to talk about that. What we are going to talk about is how CompTIA has continued to send lobbyists into Washington, into our government to be able to prevent and stall the right to repair legislation, right? That's that's really what, what my biggest issue is. Like the entire industry of CompTIA, the entire you know conglomerate of individuals and organizations who have come together to actually you know stand CompTIA up as a as a legitimate uh, business, right? That this whole thing is really predicated on the fact that like, yo, you got a computer, you can build a computer yourself, you can service one, you can repair one, whatever, and we're gonna certify your ability to do it. So why does that change when it comes to a laptop? Why does that change when it comes to a mobile phone? Why does that change when it comes to, I don't know, like a John Deere tractor, just as an example, right? If I buy it, I own it, and I wanna repair it, then why are you trying to stop me from doing that when your entire organization is supposedly predicated on the ability for me to do that exact thing. Stop playing with it. What's funny is while you were talking, I looked that up and I thought, I didn't think it was lying, but I didn't remember ever seeing it like it be super popular. And I was seeing like the latest article was like, oh, they stepped back from doing it. Probably from out of blowback. Yeah. Why, why are you worried about what I can build and what I can fix? That's that's crazy, man. Um, For me, 
like on my TikToks, I always tell people all the time uh, about the certifications. It's like, they're cool, but if you're not in the government, outside of government, they're not going to help you as much if you don't know anything. Right. And that's like the bottom line, because Stone Cold says so. Like, <laughs> um, like you like you said, we were talking on Twitter, and um, Dayspring, Day Cyberwalks was talking about Blue Team Cersei, like, and he was just pretty much saying, hey, really, I don't really vouch too much more for CYSA Plus or SEC Plus. I was like, he was saying, you know, go Blue Team Level 1. And that's one of the things I've kind of been telling clients, too, is like, if you're trying to do SOC work, Blue Team work, get that certification. It's more practical. It's going to teach you more. Mm. Than the overpriced CompTIA certification. Now, CompTIA, if y'all listening, I still sponsor y'all because I mean, I did. <laughs> I, I got the thirteen years ago. It's not totally useless, but I think it's more beneficial for roles that need to know surface level things on security because it is like a very high level security test. I think it's right. good just for. For starters, it is the, it, I would say it would be the equivalent to A plus, but for security. Mm. For you just to understand bare minimum and then try to go get a, certifi- a certification that's going to be better. For me, I tell people all the time, I get certifications to enhance what I do at work. So I'm in the process of trying to study for the AWS security specialty test. Because it was requested from work, and I think they're scaling them more AWS wise. So, just need to get better at it. I was a little rusty anyway from a year of really not de- being dealing with like AWS security alerts. Right. But that's the reason. That's the method behind it. It's not because oh, I'm going to go get this cert and somebody's going to pay me three hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> that that's not why. And you know I can respect that. And I, I, I I'll clarify one thing. I'll say like this, man. When I when I'm when I'm out here firing shots, I'm not firing them at an individual. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, you know no. what I'm saying? Like if you if 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 you or anybody else who's listening or, or sees this or whoever, you know what I mean? Like if you feel like you can extract value from having a cert, and that value could be anything. That could be like monetary value. That could be you know self esteem. That could be confidence. Whatever kind of value that you feel like you can extract from that process. If it's worth it for you, I say go for it. Do it. I will 1,000% support you in that endeavor, but I will never stop talking trash about these organizations that's out here putting it out because they deserve it. They, they absolutely deserve it. Man, that's crazy. Uh, speaking of, so let's go to this real quick. Talks about some of these bigger tech companies just hiring people to do fake work. And I know this is going to go into a lot of the misconception that a lot of people gotten with the day in the life videos that people was really just doing a, a day in the life as if they weren't working. <laughs> now, people have conspiracies about that's why people been getting laid off in tech, but it's really not. It's really it really is because for a fact they overhired. They're just hiring people to hire them. And some of these people didn't understand. And that's one of those things, too. You have to look at, man, I'm getting paid a lot of money to not do work. Who you think they're gonna let go of first? What what value have you brought to this organization? That's facts. All right. So a laid off middle employee says she wasn't given anything to do. You have to fight to find work. 
At least one of the fake work stories might be true. One TikToker is claiming on the platform that as a former employee of Meta, she had to work really hard to find work. So let's watch this one. Let's put the sound on. Following her, but I want to add a little bit more context. My name is Britt and I didn't sign the Meta severance so I can talk about this. Um, Meta, working at Meta was really weird. I was hired in April, 2022, three days after I was hired. Uh, we were asked to take a diversity survey. Everyone else that I worked with got to work on stuff, but I didn't. So I am one of those employees that was kind of hired into a really strange position where they immediately put me into a group of individuals that was not working. I mean, like we were just sitting there. We had to basically, like she said, you had to fight to find work. Um, it was a very strange environment. And it kind of seemed that Meta was hiring people so that other companies couldn't have us. And then they were just kind of like hoarding us like Pokemon cards. I don't know. But it was, yeah, it was a very strange time to work there. Man, <laughs> that's a, the, like the definition of a, a boyfriend telling the girl, if I, nobody can have you, if I can have you, nobody can. Right, right, right. So, so I'm a look. <laughs> no, go ahead. I was gonna say, man, it, there was um, I don't know if the, if there's any truth to this, but uh, I know there's there's been some rumors in the past, and I'm talking about like you know years ago when Microsoft was really starting to like take off like a rocket ship, and it was like some uh some some rumors and things like that that like they would actually go out to smaller businesses that were that were uh competitors that were kind of working in the competitive spaces them. And they would they would basically like try to buy the business, and if they couldn't, they would they would just destroy it, right? They would go in, they would they would just like wreck somebody's office or whatever. They would send goons out to get you, basically, right? I, like I said, I don't know how true it is. I mean, hey, I don't know how true it is, I, but I, would, I wouldn't be surprised, you know. <laughs> but I I feel like I feel like that's kind of what we're seeing. We're seeing a new version of that, right? You know, these companies know that these top talent on the market. And they want to make sure that their competitors don't snatch up that talent. So a lot of uh, a lot of cases, I feel like what ends up happening is, yo, let's hire these people. We know we don't have the work for them. We know we don't have the ability to have them support anything we're doing. But if we hire them, right, then our competitors can't snatch them up because we've made them sign NDAs. We've we've got them in these contractually, you know, locked in agreements. Now this woman right here, she could talk about it, right? But I'm sure there's something in the in, in her paperwork where she signed on, where she initially agreed, where it prohibits her from even joining another employer of a similar type of business or anything like that, because it's like, oh, well, we have proprietary data we're trying to protect, right? And most of these places ain't got ain't got a damn thing proprietary going on, right? You're not working on anything proprietary, but they'll put that legalese in the documents that you don't you can't go somewhere else. It's not meant to hurt you specifically. It's meant to hurt their competitors. You're just um, <laughs> you're just casualty of war. Yeah, yeah, casualty of war, collateral damage. You just that's that's it. That's all you are to them. So it says Meta, like other tech companies, went on a hiring bonanza during the pandemic as it faced enormous demand for its products and services while people were stuck inside. And that is the key word because we saw stocks tank but go right up. I tell uh -huh. people to this day. If I wasn't scared back then, I would took everything I had in my four hundred one k at Opta and put it in CrowdStrike. <laughs> Dude, I bought some CrowdStrike stock that had went up about uh, five times in in twenty twenty. Wow! 
So I could have made so much money off of that, but I was scared. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, man. It's hard to, I mean, it's hard. To, it's a gamble. I mean, that's really what it is, right? It's a gamble. But, right. Well, back know? then I was only doing one thing. Now, if, if it happens, hey, I know how to get it back. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> man. Meta said it had 44,940 employees on December 31st, 2019. By the end of 2021, the company listed 71,970 employees in its annual report and wrote, it expected headcount growth to continue for the foreseeable future. Now, we can pause it right there because why, let me see, in that two years time span, but you hire almost 30,000 more employees. So when people have been in this uproar about, oh man, tech is going to crap and blah, yada, yada. No, these people hired 30,000 people that they possibly didn't even need. Maybe benefit of that, they needed 10,000 other people. Now look at everybody they've laid off now because they paid these people an exorbitant amount of salary on top of them not doing work, on top of them probably not making that much money off of those 30,000 people that they incurred on salary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why you see the layoffs. People are thinking that, oh, tech is doing bad. No, they overhired and then do anything right. Now, that's one thing the banks are smarter about than everybody else. Look, JP Morgan told me my role wasn't going to get backfilled. They said, hey, we see the economy looking a little funny, so we're not going to give out all the bonuses, and some of y'all not getting raises, which I guess is smart on that end. However, they still had a good Q4 and chose to not do the decent thing. But needless to say, what this says, but after the Federal Reserve raised interest rates and after consumer habits changed, Meta and similar companies, including Amazon and Google, faced a hard landing in layoffs. Yeah, think about it. People were at home during the pandemic and people were on Netflix all day. Facebook, hey, what are y'all doing? I'm in the house. I'm safe. Googling all the time. Of course. Man, man. It's just like businesses that want to base all their projections on tax time. They know what them two couple of months, it's going to be a spike in sales. But after that, it's going to kind of go back to normal unless you're like in an area where everyone is like above average in income. Right, right, right. And, and I, I think this is a. It comes down to a couple of different things. One of the things we already talked about, which is, you know, um, organizations, and I'm not going to name no names, but you know, certain consulting organizations that me you were, uh, may have both worked at in the past, and, you know, allegedly, uh, you know, making making decisions uh, that they know are poor decisions because you have you have poor leadership, right? You know, you have poor. No, management. There you go. It's, you right. have managers, not leaders. Right, right, right. The other side of this too is we, we. Let's not forget this is this is Meta we're talking about, right? Meta is one of the biggest tech companies in the world. They have social media profiles and data analysis out the yin yang, right? They know probably more stuff about me than I know about me. They, they could probably de- de- detect what we're going to do before we even do it because they have so much data and information analytics that they're, they're, they're basing it off of. And you mean to tell me that they couldn't use that same analytics data, that they're, they weren't using that same analytics data to be able to tell that, yo, this is only temporary. We're seeing an uptick in, in, uh, in, in um, 
revenue specifically due to the novel issues that we're dealing with on a global scale, right? You mean something they didn't know that? If you ask me, and, and maybe it's me for my tinfoil hat on, maybe it's not, but I follow the money, right? And these companies may have spent all this money on salaries and bonuses and everything else like that to these, to these, to these employees, but we're not paying attention to the amount of money that they were standing to gain. We, we, we know it, but we're not paying attention to it. So we already know all these companies made record-breaking profits over these past two, three years. Right, you don't. You don't mean to tell me that was 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 literally hiring these people so they can continue to inflate their stock price and make it you know tell that story to their directors and their board and say like, yo, we're doing so well, we're doing so well. You know, keep giving us money, keep you know propping us up, doing stock buybacks and everything else like that, so they can inflate the cost of their own uh, the, the 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 value of their own company. Like the, the little bit of money that they were spending on, on employees, uh, severance packages, uh, hiring bonuses, salaries, all that stuff, it, it's a drop in the bucket compared to the money that he was getting on the back end in equity. You're right. And let's talk about this thing. The biggest thing that a lot of people are forgetting to bring up and one of the biggest reasons why Meta is doing horrible. The fact that their name is Meta is one of the reasons because they went from Facebook to Meta and went all in on a metaverse that was incomplete. Mm. They did not wait to do the Apple Steve Job approach. Hey, let it already be there for about a couple of years. We're going to come in and execute it. We're going to be late, but we're going to be great. That's most of, well, that was when Steve Jobs here. Now they're just late and okay. It's not really great. It's just, this is there. I might tell you a joke, but I, I never, never tell you a lie. That's right. Like that's that's pretty much sums up how I kind of feel about Apple. My stuff works well, but it's really innovation has kind of been lacking. But it's okay. I grew out of that phase of wanting every new phone. Like I grew up in a I'll be 31 at the end of the month. I grew up in a time when I came out of high school in 2010. There was a new Android phone about every two weeks. <laughs> right. So I used to keep up with every Android phone. Oh, it got this Snapdragon processor. It do this and that. It got this AMOLED screen. It got the 4.3 megapixel camera. I used to keep up with all that stuff. So I, it was a time where I was into that. Like I had the first 4G LTE Verizon phone, the mm. HTC Thunderbolt. And a little oh. kickstand on it. It was pretty oh, much. Oh man, you bring bringing back memories back, man. Flashback. Yeah, man. It was it was built off that uh the HTC Evo, you know, for Sprint. Right. That thing was a hit for Sprint, man. That was a, but see, and that's that's why um I miss certain things because back then competition was at an all time high, and it made all the companies put their best work out. You had Samsung at the time, you had HTC, you had Motorola because they were making the joys for Verizon. Mm-hmm. Of course, you had Apple. I'm just, Okay, Windows Phone were kind of still in the mix. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. But Sony. Kind of falling out, of the, falling out of the favor too, yeah. Sony with the Xperia's and the Ericsson's because they adopted uh, Android. Oh, and LG. So you had all these different manufacturers going to the limit and then they were going to say who's going to you know be on top and it ended up being Samsung and Apple. Yeah. That's who that's who it ended up being unfortunately. 
But for the time being, Samsung was always how it is now. You had a plethora of options. Like I had the first model with the Droid, push it up, had the little keyboard on it. Man, those are some like the, the kids now are kind of stuck with like everybody having the same thing. That was the reason why I liked Android back then. I always was a person that went for the different phone because I just didn't want to be like everybody else. Like I have a, a Pixel 6 over there that I don't use anymore. I need to get fixed and sell because I just use this only because for business purposes, it just works better for me. Yeah. But if yeah. it wasn't for that, like I was in college, I mean, I used to love having, I had a, I might, that would be a good segment. What cell phones you had? I had a, uh, I had a Joy DNA. I've had a Samsung. I had a Galaxy X S6. I've had uh, what other Android phone have I had? I'm trying to think of any other one that I had that was just crapped on me or messed up on me. Oh, I left one out. That used to be a major player, BlackBerry. Yeah, Rim. Man. I had a Blackberry black- was a, was a, was an illegal they own man for real. I had a um, I was late to Blackberry, but I did have a Blackberry Storm. It had so much potential. It did, but it they did. just did not. I, I don't know. They just didn't keep up with it. Like you know, they were trying to do the apps, but the Blackberry Storm used to have to like take the battery out like once a day, and then you had the two where you hit the clicks. But after that, no more Blackberries came. But it was a, it was a cool phone, man. It was it was a cool phone. Yeah. But a couple of weeks ago, I had uh, one of my guests on, Erin Railford, and she's a privacy engineer. And we briefly opened up the episode talking about the Dish Network hat. Well, there's been an article that came out this week about some of the customers are still left in the dark about it. And I want to kind of go through it. And t- one, in, that, in that conversation with her, I said, I've already accepted like, my data's out there. There's really nothing that I can do about it. That's my risk acceptance when it comes to this world. I've accepted it. <laughs> um, but let's talk about why I always tell people how you have to take, I don't care about other jobs, but when it comes to security, just like if you was talking about cops, cops need to take this stuff serious. They don't need to be trigger happy or anything like that. They need to make sure they're doing their job right because you could take a life. When in security, you miss something, a whole breach happened, and now everybody possibly fired. You call them Mandy at uh, 11.50 at night, and they're going to be on retainer, and they're going to be investigating, and y'all going to investigate until they figure out who they're going to fire. Right, right. I'm just, I'm just being honest. It's crazy, though, how Mandy does have that freaking monopoly on freaking IR. Jeez, man. And, and I'll say this, you know, because it's, it's funny you should mention it. You mentioned kind of like, you know, data just kind of being exposed on the internet. And you're, you're right. You know, what, what I think when a couple of years back when the Equifax thing went went crazy and, mm, uh, and like, they, I don't know if you remember, but like they had a, a, a server that was exposed to the internet, right? Mm-hmm. And the login and password was like admin, admin, something crazy like that. Or like admin was a username and like admin123 was a password, right? Mm-hmm. And like after that, it was a wrap. Like, okay, you got people's credit information that's out here, man. Ain't nobody safe. But I will, I will say this, man, because I was having, I was actually having a conversation with, with one of my, uh, one of my good colleagues, one of my good friends, man. He works at this company called Privacy B, hmm. right? Shameless plug, I guess, right? I don't work for them, not, not sponsored, but I, Privacy you know, B, 
yeah. go ahead and hit me over the sponsor. Privacy B, man. So my, my boy Arnez, man, you know, he works for this this company, Privacy B. And, you know, they, they really specialize in scrubbing personal data off of the Internet. You know, so like, mm. you know, I, we, we don't really have to accept the fact that like, yo, yeah, our data is out here. Right. But at the same time, you do have options. You know, these, these people are working directly uh, with companies and data brokers to be able to remove that information from the web. And and there's a there's a there's a greater implication here, right? So like if if you like I'm gonna say like this, if I'm a hacker, right? And not saying that I am or not, I'm just gonna say if I am a hacker, right, and I was out here trying to like, you know, do some phishing campaigns, I'm doing recon, I'm not necessarily going and trying to find your corporate email to try to target you there. Like, nah, like that's stupid. You know what I'm saying? I'm gonna triangulate data. So I'm gonna go on on, on LinkedIn and I can get your corporate email easy, because most corporate email accounts is at domain, whatever it is, right? And then whatever the, the nomenclature is for the email account. So maybe it's like first name dot last name. Maybe it's first initial dot last name. Maybe it's first name dot last initial. It's got to be something like that. So if I get if I get one person's corporate email, I got your whole company corporate email, period. I don't need that. That's helpful, but that's not really, that's not really what I'm after. I'm after your personal accounts because that's how I'm going to actually breach you in your enterprise, right? I'm gonna look for where you went on Facebook. Do you have a Facebook account? Maybe I don't know if you have a Facebook account. Maybe your Facebook account is private. Maybe I, you know. So I'm a, I'm gonna go somewhere. I'm gonna try to uncover your personal email account. I'm gonna go to Facebook. I'm gonna say forgot password. That's gonna tell me if you have an account there or not, right? Anybody can do it. Not saying that you should. In fact, you should definitely not do that. But these are things that are happening, and people need to be aware. So the thing is, it's like if you're really trying to protect your enterprise level identities from, you know, any kind of third party risk or any kind of external threat vectors, then you need as a company to be coming in and do two things. You have to first know your identities internally and you have to know where they may exist as a risk externally. So essentially knowing your identities literally inside and out. And I want to take a step further. I remember I was working at TSA at the time OPM got breached. Put a hold on everybody getting clearances. Wow. Yeah, man. You can look it up. Um, I honestly see some of these things just an inside job, to be honest. Solar winds crap, they blame it on an intern, which we know was all cap. The intern <laughs> don't have the ability to be changing people's passwords and stuff right, like that. Right, right, yeah. right. Let's be right. right. You you absolutely right. I mean, so much of this stuff is is third party risk, but these organizations don't want to admit it. You know what I mean? Like they don't, they don't, they're not acknowledging third party risk. They're not even realizing that that's a part of their, their, their infrastructure. So kind of, kind of capping that off before we even go into this, because this is going to be interesting too. You know, that privacy B piece is going to keep your, your identity safe from an external threat perspective so that people can't even do the recon to discover the accounts. Cause we don't know how, how sensitive even just having read level access to resources and organizations. Mm-hmm. Right. And the other side of it is, you know, I'm sure you probably heard me talk about this a lot. Um, but you've got products like you attest that, I mean, their whole thing is, is the, 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 the way to actually deploy the product is you can get that thing up and running and like, not even an afternoon, I'm talking about like an hour or less and it's up and running. Right. So you don't have to worry about all the service integrators. You don't got to worry about all this other nonsense and you can quickly run a scan against your entire environment, cloud and on-prem to know where your identities are internal to your organization. 
and start to do audits and have the, the, the artifacts to prove that you're in compliance with certain activities. Like the, the, these things are getting easier and easier by the day, but you know, these, these, these companies just don't know about these solutions. And it's like, you know, we got to get this information out here because it, it's uh, I have a vested interest, right? The, the more these companies are aware of how easy it is to protect their identities, the, 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 the safer I can sleep at night. <laughs> right. And I want to say that I'm going to every week on here, I'm going to tell you guys about how I know y'all are doing your job search are wrong. Mortgage companies are paying big bucks for cybersecurity people. Trust me, I was in the runnings to interview for a couple of roles last year. They are paying good money for them. <laughs> that is all. <laughs> so, dish customers kept in the dark as ransomware fallout continues. Dish customers are still looking for answers two weeks after the U.S. satellite television giant was hit by a ransomware attack. In a public filing published on February 28th, Dish confirmed that a ransomware was to blame for an ongoing outage and warned that hackers exfiltrated data, which may include customers' personal information from its systems, like you already said. Dish hasn't provided a substantive, substantive update since, despite customers continuing to experience issues or know if their personal data is at risk. I also want you to know, guys, this also does include Sling and anything else that the Dish owns. Right. TechCrunch has heard from customers that still have no access to Dish or services through its subsidiaries like Boost Mobile. Others say they have been unable to contact Dish customer service since the incident began two weeks ago. We have heard from others who say they have been affected by email and voice phishing attacks. Exploiting the uncertainty around the Dish incident and TechCrunch has also heard of customers saying their Dish services were disconnected due to ongoing issues at the company, meaning the customers were unable to pay their bill. Hey, listen, all I'm trying to tell you is Dish, I want a free year of uh, service. Matter of fact, I canceled my sling, but I'm saying, hey, yeah, I was affected too. I'm going to see if I can get my sling back for free. In <laughs> um, a statement given to TechCrunch on Wednesday, Dish spokesperson Edward W, I'm not going to say his name, said that customers are having trouble reaching our service desk, accessing their accounts, and making payments. When asked whether Dish was disconnecting customers, W added that customers who had Service temporarily suspended for non-payment received additional time until our payment systems were restored. That's cap. Let's see. I want to kind of scroll. So I'm gonna I'm, I'm jump in real quick with, for something because this is this is kind of interesting too. That you know we're not really we you don't hear people people talking about it enough. What we're seeing is the effects of unfettered automation. Let me explain. So. People's access to their to the television services are being cut because they can't make a payment, right? They can't make a payment because the payment systems are down, right? So it's not like these customers are unable to pay because of some financial constraint on part of the customer themselves. It's literally a system issue that's preventing them from being able to utilize the systems in place that they would normally be able to leverage in order to make the payments that they would already normally be scheduled to be making, right? The reason why these services are being cut is because there's automation on the back end that literally says, if we don't receive payment processed and cleared by this point, then the access to these services gets automatically deprovisioned. 
This is the problem with automation. I'm not saying automation is evil. Automation is fantastic, right? It's the it's it's amazing, but it still requires human intervention. If you don't have somebody actually putting hands on it, putting eyeballs on your automation, and being able to intervene in situations like this, you're doing it wrong. Tell me about it. And the things that I choose to talk about on here now, I bring them up because they affect everybody. I wanted to figure out a way how to make my podcast a little bit more engaging. So sometimes, even though the interviews are cool, it may be far away from some people because they don't identify that. Y'all identify with the fact that some of y'all have this network. Y'all identify with some of you guys have AT&T that they just suffered a breach from their marketing vendor, which to come to find out is still technically AT&T. They just named it as a marketing vendor, but it's an authorized dealer <laughs> that comes to marketing to, to you. On that podcast episode from last week, I had somebody come and said, I've already been fished with this information that they're trying to get information and, and money out of me. So the reason why I'm trying to bring up current events now is because these things affect you. Think about how the potential spam calls you get. Like your information is out there. You just got to be a little bit uh, vigilant on it. People yeah. are listening in everywhere. I have a person in my spam thing right now who is, I've said it on the podcast before. They actually got me one time only because I wasn't paying attention. And this is why I can empathize why if somebody like would get fished. Like you said, personal information is a little bit better because they were posing as somebody I know personally. And I I didn't really double check the headers to see if it actually came from her. And I remember I was talking to her about something. But when I actually looked at what it was, I was like, man, they wouldn't send me this crap. (laughs) So what they thought they did is I played them. I put a password in and they got it, but they didn't know like literally right in that moment, I just went and changed it because I was like, I'm so stupid. But that's only because I realized it. Now, the issue is that a lot of people don't realize they do that. And right. so by the time they realize it, it's too late. But this person is a, I don't know who they are. They're just trying to have fun and and, and do stuff because the same person tried to make a, they tried to like sign up for my website using that email address <laughs> and tried to request a code um, through my email. I guess try to make them account. But that Email is not the the account that that Wix is uh, registered to because that's defense in depth. I already knew certain things I didn't need to have tied to that uh, email address for that very reason. Right, right, right. And I, I love how you put that too. Right. So you know, even even though the password was was exposed for a short period of time, you know, you were able to quickly address the issue. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and really, we talking about is pulling a rug right out from under these these cyber threat actors. Right. So, yeah, you got a password. Yeah. Good luck with that. It don't work no more. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it, it don't even matter. Right. Like you can you can have it. It's just a, a useless string of, of 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 numbers and letters. Like, have fun with that one. And I mean, that's really all we do in IAM. Right. Like when you when you're running an effective IAM practice. You know, I, I kind of liken it basically like this, man. Somebody can get into your into your headquarters, right? And if you know you got a breach on your hands, if you know you got somebody in there, right? Or if you even if you don't know, right? This should be this should be 
uh, badge access to every single room in your mm. office, right? And that's Facts. what you want to do. No, for no, no. Let's take a step further. Badge access and for certain areas, keypad entry. Right, right. Like that additional layer, right? You like know to saying? get in our socks, you have the badge and put your code in. Right. To get right. anything, anything that's uh has government information, you're gonna have a badge and you're gonna have to uh key your code in. Yeah. Like yeah. we had to um like uh at Goldman Sachs, and really even at Chase, Chase has uh you come in and <laughs> this is technically something I can use for a penetration test. But it doesn't matter. They have man traps. So you have to put your card in and get in when it says, you know, walk through so you can go through to the elevator and then go up. Mm-hmm. Goldman Sachs uh, at the building that they have some of their the floors at on the bottom one, you have to put your badge in. If it goes through, then you can walk through and you can finally badge up to go to the floor you need to go up to. Right. And those right. are just security measures. And they have the security people at all times watching these things and looking for anomalies mm-hmm. when it comes to people doing things that they don't typically do on campus. And that's another reason why I tell security guards, I say, hey, you'll be perfect in the sock. You already do this. Now we just got to do it on a network. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's funny you should mention that too, man, because like, so I used to work at the Federal Reserve here in Richmond, right? Mm-hmm. And when you would actually come into the building, as soon as you come into the building, right? Like before, you, actually, before you even got to the building, it was a checkpoint before you got to the physical building. So you coming in through the parking lot, you go park your car, right? There's actually a guard that opens the gate for you to even get into the parking lot in the first place. You go park your car. So that's a guard. And it's a mechanism that physically keep people out, deter people, right? After you get into the parking lot, you're going through a um, a security check. It's like a, a a satellite office that actually sits outside of the building before you can even touch the building, before you can walk up into the building, right? And in that satellite office, there are like full body scan metal detectors and there is a security guard on staff, right? At every entrance point, at every ingress and egress point, there's security, okay? You would never have uh, just cameras. You would never have cameras and, for instance, metal detectors and not have a security guard. You know why? Because the security guard is your governance, right? They're the ones to actually govern the activity of checking people. You're not just leaving it to the honor system for people to come in and say, oh, I don't have anything on me. No, I'm not exfiltrating data. No, I don't have any USBs um, when I'm coming out of the building. No, I don't have any weapons coming in. No, you have somebody actually be there and watching every single person that comes in and out. Yes, it it does slow the process for how quickly an employee can enter the building every day. But you know what? Everybody's safe. Everybody's safe. And when you when you set that standard, people might complain about it at first, but soon enough, they ain't gonna complain about it after a little while. Give them give them a week or two. They gotta stop complaining. Yep. In the words of uh Cat Williams, don't be sorry, be careful. That's it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> I really, That's it. I'd rather, you know, I'd rather you turn something in, you know, or do something slow, right, than fast and wrong. I learned that lesson <clears> before too. And um, I would just like to ask you, I guess, what would be some things that you would want to leave, like a few things you want to leave the listeners with, if whether it's their career, how to, 
and and I, I guess another episode does need to be on like how to interview, how to see through red flags at companies. Yes. Besides saying, you know, looking for um be part of a family or hit the ground running. There are kind of phrases that you can look for and like, uh, I don't know about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think I think just general tips, um, and we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, is always be asking questions, right? You're not there in an interview to be interviewed. You gotta change your mindset, right? You you're not there to be interviewed, you're there to interview them. When I go into an interview, even before I have my own company, I'm going to an interview like I am an entrepreneur. You know why? Because if I'm being hired somewhere, I am the product. I'm the I'm the method in which they're going to be able to accomplish their goals. That's the reason why they talk to me, right? So when I'm going in there, I need to evaluate the 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 uh, the authenticity of the 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 arrangement, right? I need to understand where you are from a business perspective. I need to understand what your processes are. And I need to understand how effective your policies are, right? So I'm going to be asking those kind of questions. I'm going to ask them the hard questions. I don't care who you are. You could be the recruiter. You could be the hiring manager. It could be tech interview. I don't care. I'm asking you questions. And I'm not waiting for the end of the interview to ask questions in the last five minutes. Now, we we, we coming through the gate busting in like the Kool-Aid man. So that's that's the one thing I will say. Um, you know, definitely be, be coming up with uh, thought-provoking questions critical questions you can always tell because you can look at the job description and you can kind of determine like okay you know if they're focusing on technology i want to know who the people are who's supposed to be managing that technology i want to know who the processes are uh, what the processes are behind those those people you know what those people are driving in terms of those processes to manage the technology right if you're talking to me about uh, processes i want to know about the technology i want to know about people i'm, I'm always going to pivot based off of what information you're showing me to understand the information that you're not showing, right? That's that's first and foremost. I think the other thing I, I would say too is, you know, I, I think you pointed this earlier as well. It's like, you don't have to be expert. You don't have to be expert to stuff, right? Like you want to know enough about it that you can go and have a intelligent conversation. You know, um, that's, that's really it. You know, there's going to be plenty of stuff that we don't know because the technology is changing on a daily basis. It's impossible to know everything, right? Um, even with certifications, I didn't mention this before, but certifications are a point in time audit. It's going to measure your knowledge at that exact moment you're taking that test. It's impossible to really hold on to every piece of information that you're going to re- review um, leading up to the test and even after you take the test, because unless you have a, a photographic memory, it's going to be impossible, right? So, you know, the best thing you could do, like I said, is to ask questions, ask critical questions to that process, and, and just... Uh, Focus more on the performance of the person who's hosting the interview versus your own performance. Like, just be you. Just be you. That's what they hire, right? That's why they brought you here. If they brought you into an interview and they're not trying to hire you, then they're wasting your time. That's definitely a good one. Um because sometimes they will hit you with the oh, we decide to go with a candidate with more experience or some BS sometimes. Right. I've had I've had an interview on Wax where the director was like he wanted to move forward with me, but I they didn't move forward with me, which was fine. I mean, that's one of the things too. And that's why I want I would love to have an episode about interviewing. It's like cause sometimes it sucks being the first person that interviews. If you have a company that wants to always go through all the applicants versus hey, if this is the person like that's wound me, I'm finna get this person now. Right. Like 
I did in my current situation. They didn't finish interviewing everybody. I wowed them. They got me. So sometimes that's what it is because I like if anybody listens to this, like, man, I don't know how you aren't working with them right now. I said, I don't either. But you know, hey, this <laughs> wasn't meant to be. Right. This wasn't right. meant to be. But uh, guys, I appreciate you guys for tuning in to another episode of Textual Talk. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, please leave us a review. And you know, now if you're listening on Spotify, you can also watch the videos on Spotify. And if you're on YouTube, please put in the comments below what just a takeaway you took away from this video or what are some things that maybe you want us to cover on the next episode. But I appreciate y'all. Also, check out the links in the description. If you're ready to get in tech sales or IT, check out my course careers link. Use the $50 coupon and get off on your course careers journey. And yeah, like I always say, let's stay textual. And until next time, I'm out.